Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you all. It's great to see you all here this morning. It's uh, been quite a common theme going through this morning's service, isn't it? Sort of uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm glad to see that um, Gay is, is not a keeper of the law. It's, uh, it's a good thing, Gay, that you're gracious. So, Phil, I'm, I'm great to see your resolutions, mate. You know, fit, tidy, healthy, new phone. The rest of it is fantastic. Who here has made a New Year's resolution? Ah, so. Why the rest of you not? Hey. You see, it's not uncommon at the start of every year that, uh, for certain resolutions to be made. It's not uncommon at all. Uh, some of you here have made those resolutions and some of those resolutions are probably the same as the previous year. Um, so why do we find it so difficult to, to keep these things? We state something in our mind, we, we may even communicate it to others within our family. This is what I'm going to do for 2018. But why do we find at times these things difficult uh, to obtain? I think it's partly because uh, we make the resolution maybe in a flippant manner, right? Everyone's making a resolution, so yeah, we're going to get on the bandwagon, I'll make a resolution. We haven't really thought about the impact of, of what has been uh, promised. You see, when you make it in a flippant manner, you don't understand the ramifications of the resolution. Uh, because when you resolve something, when you, when you decide that you want to do something... There's got to be some discipline, there's got to be some commitment. But above all, there's got to be a heart change. The heart has to change and have a desire to actually push you forward in that direction. To bring the resolution about an action. I'll, I'll give you a bit of an example. When I was a younger man, and, and some of you may laugh at this, I used to be reasonably fit and thin. Okay, so, but I'm, I resolved that, that in my heart, from an athletic perspective, I wanted to be the very best at a sport I, I chose to, to be at. Now, if I decided at the start of the year to go and just sit on the couch and just continue to think about, I want to be the best at this, I want to be the best at that, would have the resolution ever been realised? No, not at all. Because part of the resolution was discipline. You had to go and practice the skills that you wanted to acquire. You had to become a little bit fitter than what you were. You had to get involved in competitions to, to test your skill. So discipline, commitment, and a heart to, to be better than what you were was at the heart of that resolution. I'd be interested to know how many of you here have made faith-based resolutions for 2018. Resolutions about your, your Christian walk. Resolutions about how you interact with one another in the, in the body of Christ. Resolutions about perhaps improving the area of spiritual discipline that requires improvement, i.e. prayer or scripture memory or consistent Bible reading. You see, over the break, I was reading a wonderful biography 
about a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Some of you may know him. He came to faith at the age of 17 while he's actually, actually doing theological training. This is in Yale in 1720, a long time ago. This is when Yale University was first founded, and some of you may be astonished, Yale and Harvard, when they were first founded, were schools of theology. Do you know that? They proclaimed the beauties of Christ through their schools. They're now far removed from that. But Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 17, came to a saving faith and knowledge of Christ. And before his 18th birthday, he had written out 70 resolutions that he wanted to use to shape his life. They were the guidelines, the system of checks and the balances that he would use personally to chart out his life, his relationships, his conversations, his desires, his activities. You can probably group these six resolutions into six major groups, and I've had a go at this, and I think there's a bunch of them that talk about pursuing the glory of God. There's a bunch of them about forsaking sin. There are resolutions about making the proper use of God allotted time. You know, when he made this in 1720, he didn't have social media to worry about. He didn't have television to worry about. He didn't have all sorts of other sort of influences and distractions to worry about. But in his heart, he said, Lord, I want to use the time that you have given me to your glory. He resolved to live with all his being for the Lord. He resolved to pursue humility and love. And he resolved to make frequent self-examination about where he was in the process. A great friend of mine, Steve Lawson, has, has commented about Edwards and he says this, As a young man, Jonathan Edwards purposed to order his spiritual life by vowing to live for the glory of God. Such resolve would require him to live with spiritual discipline and a great dogged determination in every area of life. He knew that in his, this pursuit, sin must be forsaken and his tendency to anger resisted. Time must be measured, death must be appraised and eternity weighed. Life must be lived wholeheartedly. Humility must be shown and loved practiced. In all this, self must be regularly examined. As I read this book, I, I was incredibly convicted because I looked back at my own personal life and said, okay, Edwards here resolved to live his life not for self but for God. He put some boundaries around it by giving some resolutions that he wanted to live by and it's challenged me to preach to you today, to teach to you today from the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. Because I think at the heart of, of what Edwards was doing here, he was saying, I want to make much of Christ. In Christ alone, I want Christ to be the centre. And I just want to give you a few thoughts today as we look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John about who Christ is and why he should be centre. 
See, because when you know and are captured by Christ, your behaviour changes. Many of you have experienced that here, right? When you live under the lordship of Christ, when you are his disciple and his follower, your life changes. You have a new boldness to talk to others about him. You have a new resolve to to love those that you don't normally love. You have a new resolve to go the extra mile and see your neighbour for the sake of sharing Christ. See, you're no longer concerned about serving yourself, but you're concerned about serving him and serving others in love. One of the other great byproducts of being centred on Christ is your anxiety lessens. Because you become less concerned about your circumstances and you see your circumstances as something that God is using to shape and refine you. See, when you follow Christ, you, you know that you are to lay your anxieties at, the, at his feet. As he promises that, I will make your burdens light. This is part of the refining and transforming journey of faith through the power of the Spirit that we see when we focus on Christ. So this morning I want you to catch a fresh glimpse of who Christ is and how he can transform you, continue to work in you through 2018 for his glory. I would hope by the end of this morning you'll resolve in your heart afresh to follow Christ. So please read with me the first 18 verses of John. If you don't have a Bible, please come up and grab one. We'll be looking at this text reasonably in depth today. Uh, So let's read together. Very familiar words, I'm sure, to to many of us here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is commonly known as the prologue. And you might say to me, Nathan, what is a prologue? Well, in athletic terms, a prologue is the start of a professional cycling race. All right, at the start of a professional cycling race, like the Tour de France, uh, there'd be a short preliminary time trial to determine places on the grid, so to speak. But this is not the sense here. The prologue here is an introductory section to the whole Gospel of John. These 18 verses introduce to us the major themes that are going to come throughout the Gospel of John. Other words, other synonyms that could be used, it's an introduction, a foreword, a preamble, or even a prodigamon. But I think we'll stick with prologue. A beginning. See, unlike the other Gospels, John doesn't give us a birth narrative. He doesn't give us an account of the history behind Jesus' parents and, and why he comes into the world. He just goes straight in and gives us this incredible, incredible view of who Christ is. By the use of this particular technique, by, by using this introductory formula, he introduces the most important themes that he's going to develop through the rest of the gospel. Can you think of some of the themes? Just look through those verses. What do you think the themes are he's going to develop? First, he's going to develop who the word is. He's going to develop the meaning of light, the meaning of believe, the meaning of receive, what it means to be adopted as, as sons of God, what it means that the one of, of a kind son has come into the world displaying grace and truth. They're just some of the things that are covered here. But primarily, I just want to look at these first. I'm going to break the prologue up into five sections. I'm going to concentrate on three of them and give some minor comments to two areas. The first area I want to look at, and, and as I think about making resolutions for the new year, it's about making a resolution based on some truth and based on the beauty of who Christ is and how that should shape your everyday life. And I think these first five verses give us an insight into that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My question to you, what is the Word? To read through here, how is the Word identified? Where is the word identified? We're not told the name of the word until verse 17. It's Jesus Christ. 
So the very clear focus of these first five verses is the pre-existent glory of Christ. The one who always was and always has been and always will be. Do you get the nature of this? In the beginning was the word. There was nothing else other than Christ, the Father, and the Spirit. There has never been anything else other than those three. In perfect unity, in perfect harmony. But here, John is focusing on the second person of the Trinity, the Word. And the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And the Word has created all things. The other thing that we see is in him is life and in him is light. In these five verses we see the total ministry of Jesus being explained. And his ministry is being placed in the framework of his eternal pre-existence. And his eternal being. And it concludes at the end of this prologue in God's divine plan of salvation through the eternal word. Both present salvation and future consummation. Now John uses the term word logos here to divorce himself from the the Greek influence of Platonism and Stoicism. Because by using Logos, he shapes it into the fact of incarnation, word becoming flesh. The Stoics, and they sort of had concepts that related the mind of God. And this is not what John is saying. He's saying, no, the word is God. And he is flesh. In the incarnation. Other folks have tried to relate the word to wisdom here. But John clearly portrays the word as the eternal Christ, the divine agent in creation, the incarnate Jesus, who is. Confessed as Lord and God. Verse 18 of here. Note some of the similarities in the creation account from Genesis 1. It's incredible. You go back to Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1? In the First Testament. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. What was God's first creative act? He was to call forth light. Right? And then later God placed lights in the sky and separated light from darkness. 
Why did he do that on the first day? Because nothing would live without light. Light makes it possible for things to exist. And notice the beautiful contrast that John uses here. He's saying, in the same way, light, the light of the word of God, the light of Christ himself is what makes people exist. In him is life and light. Christ is the source of both physical and spiritual life. He is also the source of supernatural light. Since only those who possess spiritual eternal life have the capacity to walk in the light. So in the beginning was the word. The pre-existent Christ who has created all things and in him is life and light. You know, throughout church history, many heresies have come from these five verses. I don't get it. I read these and I say, well, how can you get a heresy out of here? And the heresy relates to the fact that people say, no, Christ is created. You have the Jehovah's Witness, you have the Seventh-day Adventists, you have the Latter-day Saints, you have the Christadelphians who all align themselves to the heretical view of the full humanity and deity of Christ. The word of God is clear. Christ was with God. Christ was God. He is the creator of all things. He is the life and he is the light of men. Don't be fooled or trapped by these heresies. This is foundational to us as Christians, foundational to our belief in Christ that he is fully the son of God and yet fully man. He is the one-of-a-kind son, if you like. There's no one else like him. He is fully divine on one side and fully human on the other. And only those two things can provide salvation. Only those two things can provide salvation. John also goes on throughout this gospel to explain the significance of the divinity of Christ. I could take you to many places in this gospel, and I know some of you have done some extensive study through John in the last year, and you'll see time and time again reference to Christ being the resurrection and life, the only way, the truth and life, that he is the light for all nations. He is the light of the world. You see the Pharisees drive into him at every account and try and say, what, you're saying you're the son of God? That is blasphemy. But he stands up and says, this is who I am. Before Abraham was, I was. I am the divine son of God. 
folks, resolve to know him more. Dwell on these verses and, and realize that no matter what your circumstances in life, the pre-existent Son of Glory has saved you, has promised you eternal salvation, has given you life and light to follow and serve him. Don't be fooled and trapped by the, the, the enticement of this world. Set your minds and hearts upon Christ and Christ alone. The second part of the prologue, verse 6 through 8, is, is John's testimony. I'm not going to spend much time on this. But it's clearly John the Baptist we're talking about here. He was a forerunner to Christ. And his primary focus was to bear witness about the light. Why? So that all might believe in him. That's all I'm going to say. He points to Christ. And we see that in the, in the end of chapter 1 where the Pharisees come to him and say, are you a lie to the prophet or are you the Messiah even? He says, no, 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 no. I'm only the man here to point to the one who is to come, the one who will provide salvation, the one who will baptize with the Spirit of God, the one who is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. John bore witness to the light so that all might believe through him. Verses 9 through 14, I think, are the central, central part of this whole prologue. The central meaning of the prologue uh, comes to focus here. Because it talks about why the word has come into the world. And it talks about the response of, of the world towards the word, towards Christ. So verse 9, the, the word is identified as the, the true light which enlightens everyone. But verse 10 gives us a really, really sad summary of the way the world views Christ. View Christ then when John was writing, views Christ now. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What a sad testimony, is it not? Christ, the Messiah of the world, came to his people, Israel, and they rejected him. They blasphemed against him. Some believed, yes, but a majority rejected. It's the same today. We live in this world. We personally acknowledge that God is creator, but so many do not. They believe the lies that some other way this world is formed. 
They look at the heavens and deny the creator. Why? So they can worship the creature rather than the creator. Romans tells us about that. The world does not know him. The world consistently rejects him. My question for you today, are you someone who rejects Christ? Because if you do reject Christ, that is a hopeless position. There's a position that will place you under judgment. There's a position that will place you under eternal damnation. Do you know what? There's a great side to this story because verse 11 and 12 tells us, but to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the offer of the eternal Pre-existent, one who gives life and light. That to receive him, you believe on his name and you become his child. That's a, that's a position of utter grace. That's God pouring out his grace in the person and work of Christ to save you from sin. And it's all the work of God when you read verse 13. Who were born, not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born of God, to become a child of God, is to be born by God through his regenerating spirit who saves you. I'm going to ask today, because I don't know everyone in this room. Have you believed and received Christ? as your saviour. What a resolution that would be for the new year. Resolve in your heart to follow him because there is only one way of salvation. This book is loaded with that. John's gospel, I am the way, the truth and the life. There is no other way except through me. That's what Christ says. This is typified in verse 14 by this wonderful statement, for the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us or dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as if the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The eternal logos, the eternal word has come to this earth and he has walked amongst us. He has become a man, a one of a kind son, fully God, yet fully man. And he's dwelt, he's been with us. Not only that, he came to sacrifice himself for the sin of the world. That's a tremendous statement. For those of us who know Christ, does this not compel you to worship and serve him more? 
His great love, the great grace in which he's given you. He says, I have come to give you life and give it to the full. The very eternal Son of God has dwelt on this earth to pay the penalty of sin that you and I could never pay. The marvels of the incarnation. Christ's mission was always redemptive. He was the true light. His purpose for coming into this world was for redemptive purposes, to save you and I. His first mission was, as this verse has told us, is to come to the Jews, but they failed to receive him as in promised Messiah. The, gen- the world generally failed to recognize that Jesus was the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. But the further mission of Christ was that he, he came to redeem those whom the Father wills, verse 13. Now, this redemption is a spiritual in nature. It's not because of your birth. It's not because of your ethnicity. It's not because of the works of your own hands or the reasoning of man about God's divine purpose. Belief in the person and work of Christ as God's atoning sacrifice for sin is the primary aspect of becoming a child of God. And I say, hallelujah, what a saviour. Because I don't understand it. It's a mystery to me that the the pre-existent, glorious Son of God came to this earth. To deal with the issue that you and I have in our hearts that separates us from God forever. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Verse 15 has... A further witness by John just crying out and saying, I've told you about this true light. He is the one that was ranks way before me. That's an understatement, is it not? <laughs> what a major understatement here. Oh, you're John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah, Jesus sort of ranks just slightly before me. No, he is the pre existent eternal Logos, the creator of everything. Then we have these wonderful final verses. And from his fullness we have all received grace already in place of grace given. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verse 16, just focusing on that. And from his fullness we all received grace already in place of grace given. I've used the NIV translation there, 2011 one, grace already in place of grace given. It's a more faithful rendering of the text because in essence it's saying everything in the First Testament was a gift of God's grace, right? Everything in the First Testament was gifts of God's grace. But now, the manifestation of God's grace is in the eternal Son of God. 
And he is now given in the flesh to all humanity. In his fullness, he has been given. As Jesus is the full manifestation of the Father's glory in human form. The full manifestation. Like he uses here the story of Moses. When the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember when Moses got given the law, Moses asked, look, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't do that. Just go and hide in the rock. I'll go pass by and you can see the the trail of my glory. And then when he came down into the mountain, the people saw Moses and they saw the glory of God shining through his face, right? They saw that. They, they marveled at it. said, well, he's changed. You would if you'd been in the presence of God for 40 days. He's changed. But what he's doing here, John, the writer here, is saying, this is greater than that because we now see Jesus Christ himself who is the full manifestation of, of God's glory. And he's here dwelling among us. And he's revealing his father. And he is God. And he's going to make his father known. And this is John's introduction to the rest of the book. I hope as you've contemplated the wonders of the incarnation, the mystery of the one-of-a-kind Son, the pre-existence of Christ as creator and sustainer of life, as the one who is the life and light of all mankind, I trust that you've resolved in your heart today to follow him wholeheartedly. He has given us all, all things undeservedly, to grant you eternal life. Now in this pursuit to to follow Christ wholeheartedly, it's not a pursuit or a resolution in isolation from other believers. Folks, we need one another in this pursuit. We need mutual encouragement. We need accountability. These are key components as to why God has designed this body life, the thing called the church. You see, one of the the quickest ways of, and most common ways to lose your love for Christ is to fail to meet together. Fail to meet together for teaching, for coming on the sound of God's word, for prayer, for fellowship, remembrance of Christ's death, resurrection, and resurrection. Today, resolve in your heart to follow Christ. Look at the beauty of what we have seen today, that he is the word, that in him is life, in him is the true light, that all who call upon him and believe in him give us the right to become children of God, that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that we have received grace already in place of grace given. And that when we look at the face of Christ, we see the Father as he has made him known.
I want 2018 to be a, a year where you resolve to live as Christ. Thanks, Mr. Tim.